Welcome to the CIM Marketing Podcast. The contents and views expressed by individuals in the CIM Marketing Podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the companies they work for. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the all-new season of the CIM Marketing Podcast. And to kick off today, we've got a very special guest in the shape of Charlie Dawson, who is founder of the foundation and author of the customer Copernicus. Charlie, how are you today, sir? Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, very good to see you. It's great to see you too. And welcome to the new season. Thanks for kicking us off and starting us with this curtain raiser. Good curtain raiser, I think. We're going to be talking about your area of expertise, which is customer-led marketing and how that can be beneficial for business. And if it's not too obvious a question, human at least, what do we mean when we're talking about being customer-led? It's, it's actually a very good question because uh, there's a lot of cross-purposes discussion about this. Customer-led is not what it sounds like. So it sounds like you ask customers what to do and then do what they say, and it, yeah. it, it, it isn't that. Right. It's actually about doing two things uh, together. It's understanding what customers really value. So what are the problems they're trying to solve or the outcomes they want rather than what they're buying at the moment? And then once you've understood those, can you find new and better ways of solving those problems or getting them to those outcomes? And customers can often help you with the first of those if you ask the right questions, but you have to ask slightly deeper questions than, than the obvious. And customers often can't help you at all with the second one of those, hence all the cliches about customers didn't invent iPhones uh, and they'd have asked faster horses rather than cars and so on. So, so being customer led is about understanding those problems and outcomes and then finding new and better ways to get to them. Cliches, but good cliches to remember, because cliches with a grounding in in facts. For the very few people who haven't heard those, and there may be some somewhere in the world, uh, the iPhone point is that nobody asked for a smartphone because nobody could conceive of a smartphone. And way, way before that, Henry Ford said that if you'd asked customers what they wanted, they would have asked for faster horses because nobody could conceive of the automobile nobody could conceive of a powered car taking them around and to some degree charlie you seem to be implying that not much has changed in that regard and customers are still not great at telling us what they want yeah and, and it's not customers jobs to be good uh, at at right. doing that it's our jobs to be good at understanding what they need and to be inventive in response um but but that's not easy either um and and i think something that is unchanging over many decades uh, are the difficulties that people find with doing this for real uh, that get even magnified uh, to an even greater degree when you try and do it in an organisation of any size. Uh, and that's what I've been studying and uh, uh, and learning about for the last 23 years with the foundation and uh, for the seven and a bit years it took to write the book that you referred to. Is, is it something that you fear might get a little bit left behind? Because of course everybody would say they want to be customer-led, but to be customer-led in the manner that you say it should be done takes hard work it takes money often um it takes energy uh, and, and you know at the moment lots of uh, companies are staring down the barrel of rising energy costs rising uh, fuel costs spiraling labor costs because of a tight labor market general cost of living hitting businesses even harder than it is household is it something that you fear might get a little bit forgotten uh, when we're in a bit of a pinch i think it's something that is talked about a lot uh, and is the front of a lot of people's minds. Um, 
But I think this thing about it being unclearly understood, and then I think even bigger than that, I think the fact that it is genuinely very hard to do are, is what gets in the way. So let, let, let me let me sort of describe a bit about of the learning that we sort of went through. And let me start with some examples of success. Um, because the examples of success, success would make you think it might be quite common. So, so there were a number of stories we looked at in the book. Um, four of them, so Tesco, EasyJet, O2 and Amazon. Uh, let me describe quickly now. So the first thing that, that's common about those four is the customer problems they addressed in, in their successes, uh, in their periods of huge success, which for Amazon is still ongoing, were pretty obvious. So for both Tesco and EasyJet, it was that the experience of either shopping or uh, flying with a discount airline uh, was was difficult. And in fact, in the discount airline sense, it was horrendous. And, and they and they saw that and they did something about it. In O2's case, it was the existing customers getting ripped off uh, and taken for granted with all the new customers getting all the best deals. Uh, and customers were very vocal about that. That was a very well understood problem in the industry, but no one was doing anything about it. Um, Amazon, Jeff Bezos is fond of saying uh, customers are never going to ask for less choice, uh, more expensive products and slower delivery. No. They always going to want more choice, faster delivery and lower prices. You don't need to keep asking them that. You just need to concentrate on finding new and better ways of doing it. So, so the customer problems are obvious. All of those organisations have also had amazing commercial success in the periods that they were very good at doing what I'm describing. So Tesco, it was over about 30 years that they did what they did. And over that period, they went from 12% uh, to 33% UK market share yeah. in groceries in a mature market. Yeah. Uh, they went from one country to 14. Uh, they went from number three in the UK to number three in the world. And they went from making 50 million pounds profit a year yeah. to 4 billion. Um, uh, EasyJet uh, over their period, 2010 to 2015, uh, went from three to five billion revenue, 120 million to 550 million profit, and a share price from four pounds to 19. Uh, O2 uh, in their period uh, from 2003 to 2008 uh, went from being described as worthless, so valued at about 3.7 billion, to five years later being bought by Telefonica for 17.7 billion. Yeah. And Amazon, I think we all know about Amazon, but it is. It, it does. It is slightly hair curling, actually, that in 1996, their revenue was only 15 million dollars. <laughs> ten, ten years later, it was 15 billion. Ten yeah. years later than that, it was 150 billion. And the valuation uh, in August 2020 topped two, two trillion. Yeah. So I think all four of those, you'd say the thing they did for customers was obvious and their commercial success has been significant. Usually things that are obvious and attractive you think would be common. And yet this is incredibly rare. So what we what we found ourselves doing in the book was trying to find out why. Why is this obvious and attractive thing so rare? Why is it so rare? I guess that's the obvious next question. Um, first of all, let me describe there are two different ways of looking at the world in an organisation. Uh, the common one is from the inside out. So you start with, uh, you know, in your offices next to your colleagues, uh, and uh, and you have lots of ways of doing things that are quite familiar and customers are quite distant uh, and often silent and certainly not present every day. Um, or you can look from the outside in. So you can start with customers and their worlds and what really matters to them and then try and work out how you respond to it as an organisation. And that is less common and more difficult. What we what we found in our journey of writing the book is that something quite strange in addition to that 
uh, also really matters. And they are the unspoken shared beliefs that people in an organization have. Right. So shared beliefs are very powerful things. Uh, so uh, if you think years ago, uh, when everybody assumed the earth was flat, it was quite dangerous to think that the earth or to say that the earth might be round. And in fact, Copernicus, who's been mentioned uh, already, uh, he was the person that uh, that said that, in fact, the earth uh, goes round the sun rather than the sun going round the earth. And right. he was so worried about what might happen that the book he wrote to say that uh, he put at the beginning of it that this was useful for navigating ships, but might not be true. He was right. concerned that the, the uh, Catholic Church might uh, put him to death. It was heretical for him to make this suggestion because it, it didn't meet the shared beliefs of the general populace and the Catholic Church. That, that's right. He, he was going against the shared beliefs of, of not just them, but, but many more. Yeah. So in organisations, there are usually a lot of unspoken, there are always a lot of unspoken assumptions or beliefs, in particular in relation to this question uh, that matter, that are about what success is and how success is achieved. So kind of what gets you a pat on the back and what gets you in trouble? What gets you promoted and what gets you overlooked and put to one side? Uh, and also think, you know, there's unspoken shared beliefs about, you know, do you swear? Uh, do you turn up on time for every meeting or does it not really matter? And we're really good as social animals at detecting those beliefs. And we all know that the way you detect them is you look at what everyone else does. You don't read what's written down. Yeah. Uh, and what's written down might be that we're customer led, but what everyone does uh, might not be that at all. Yeah. What we then learned was that there are some inside out belief systems and outside in belief systems that relate to this question of being customer led. And inside out belief systems are, of course, natural. Inside out beliefs in relation to what I've just said might be that success is some form of hitting the numbers. And a good way of achieving it is setting higher targets, promising people lots of money if they hit them and getting annoyed with them if they don't. And what I've just said is powerful for at least two reasons. One is it's really common, like most organizations do a version of what I've just described. So you don't exactly stand out as being mad if you if you follow uh, that prescription. The second issue is that in the short term, if you're in a degree of chaos and you do what I just described, actually for a short while you will do better because you'll be organized and people will know what they're supposed to be doing and they'll be focused and they'll be getting on with stuff and so on. The problem comes over time as the number you're trying to hit each year gets higher yeah. and uh, if you're a very inside out orientated company, your response to the number getting harder to hit is to push harder to at best become quite promotional and salesy with your your communications, perhaps uh, maybe less good than that. You become quite hard salesy in your culture. And maybe worse than that, some organizations find themselves where people just make the numbers up. So inside out belief systems are very common, but are very unhelpful eventually. They're OK for exploiting your existing customer base in any given moment because they're a bunch of shared beliefs which are based on something. But as you as the target grows and as you're you're looking to expand your customer base, you're just doing the same thing over and over again. And instead of unlocking new constituencies of customers, you're just trying to hit the existing base harder and harder and harder. And actually, some of that base will be peeling off to more innovative companies. That's absolutely right. Let me describe why outside in beliefs or an outside in belief system is almost equally difficult and problematical. And it's because most customer led initiatives have a set of qualities that are all good. They they are obviously good for customers. They obviously have a cost to the business, 
but it is less clear in advance what the commercial return to the business is going to be. Yeah. So so let me let me give an example. So so Tesco, one of the first things Tesco did in their in their very good run was they introduced the one in front queuing system. What is the one in front? You have to remind me. It's so long yeah. back in the day, I can't remember the one in front queuing system. So, so the promise was that if you're in a queue and there was more than one person in front of you, they would open the next checkout. And right. if they carried on being uh, more than two people in each queue, uh, they would open the next checkout. And they would keep on doing that. They would keep on doing that until all the checkouts were open. And that was their promise that they advertised on telly. Right. And they worked out in advance of doing that, that it would cost them £60 million a year for the extra people. At the time, their profits were £500 million a year. This was a serious commitment. Now, the question is, what are customers going to do when you do it? So clearly, shorter queues are better than longer queues. But are customers going to come more frequently? Are they going to spend more each time they come? Or are they just going to be kind of pleased and spend exactly the same? And then there's a further problem, because it's quite hard to find out the answer to that question in advance. So you can't research it. You know, if you ask customers what they're going to do, that I mean, they don't know. They might answer the question, but they don't really know until they've experienced it probably multiple times. Yes. You could pilot it, but if you pilot it, you're going to show your competitors what you're planning to do. And Tesco's biggest motivation was to overtake Sainsbury's, who at the time had been market leaders for years. Um, so showing Sainsbury's what you're planning to do was not a good idea if you were going to get benefit from doing something before them uh, and and shouting about it. So you're stuck in this difficult situation where you've got you've got this real good business case where you, you, you can't make the commercial part of it with certainty. It's a beautiful marketing conundrum that can be applied as, a, as an example all over the place is that we've got this great idea. We know from a marketing standpoint, we're pretty confident it's going to work because nobody likes queuing up in the supermarket. And if we can make this pledge and we can be good on our pledge, we know that it's something we're going to be able to shout about and crow about. But when you go to the finance people, they say, OK, that's fine, but it's going to cost us 60 million quid in extra labour. A lot of that labour will, will by definition be latent. So it's going to cut into our profit margin. Yes, the customers might be slightly happy, but we don't know how much that happiness is going to turn in terms of extra revenues. So it's very hard to make that case uh, to the FD, to the C-suite, when you're the CMO, even though you know it will make the customers happy. So let me let me now describe to you what we learned about how this conundrum gets solved. Our learning is about what I would describe as customer pioneers. Yeah. So, so this is fairly unusual where an organisation in a sector pioneers on behalf of customers kind of goes first proactively and makes things work better for customers before their competitors before others in the sector and and customer pioneers have this have this quality of going first and then have these properties of, of doing very well commercially so what do, what do what do customer pioneers do well we found that there were four steps to their journey but i'm just going to concentrate on the first two really the first one of the two I describe as a precondition, really, and it's and we've got a very odd word for it. We call it burning ness. So burning ness actually means one of three things. It means pain or fear or ambition, and they're actually in descending order of effectiveness. So pain is it's going wrong, obviously now in the organisation. So it's like a turnaround. So nobody argues that things have to change. Fear is a bit less effective because it's okay now, but it's going to go wrong in a bit. So maybe and di- digital disruption is a good example of this. So maybe you're Kodak, you've invented dig- digital ph- photography, but you're selling an awful lot of conventional film. Yeah. Why would you ruin your conventional film business today? Why don't you wait for a year and do it then? 
So fear can be powerful, but it's less powerful than pain. And then ambition is the weakest because ambition, as far as you can tell, things are fine now and they're fine in the future. But you have some desire to prove something, to mend something out there, to make the world a better place, to win uh, some kind of shared ambition amongst the leadership team to do something very different. And the point about calling this burningness is to have the effect that's needed. Whatever combination of these of these qualities you have, pain and fear and ambition, need to be held so strongly that you're simply not prepared to contemplate not addressing the fear or not realising the ambition or not dealing with the pain. And what that does is it flips the risk round. Yeah. So normally it's safe to do what you've always done yeah. and dangerous to do something a bit different. But if you're on fire, it's madness to keep doing what you've always done. And only doing something quite different might take you away from the pain or the fear or towards your ambition. Yeah. And you still don't know for sure in advance how well those different initiatives might work. Uh, but if you're someone like Tesco, you look at the number of things you could do and you kind of go, OK, that one in front queuing thing, that looks like it's got promise. That looks like it's less mad than the other mad things. Let's let's give it a go. Let's try it. It's worth trying. And so burning this then gets you to the second step, which which we described as moments of belief. So the only things powerful enough to change the unspoken shared beliefs of people across an organisation are people seeing something work for real that contradicts the assumptions they previously had to get past that first element of inertia that first element of natural diet of shared beliefs if you like of busting the shared beliefs strikes me as a, a non-trivial challenge the burningness needs to be uh, needs to be felt by by a group by at least a small group of the of the leaders of that of the entire business so in tesco's case that burningness was ambition and it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a lovely ambition. They hated Sainsbury's and a bunch of people joined in 1982 um, who got called the class of 82. And Terry Lee, he was one and Tim Mason was another. And there were there were about 20, 20 plus of them. They had different backgrounds to the traditional Tesco people. They were very ambitious and very driven. And they wanted to show that they could beat Sainsbury's. Yeah. And so they spent the 80s catching Sainsbury's up essentially by benchmarking Sainsbury's and copying them. But what they realised was they couldn't overtake Sainsbury's by copying them, clearly. They had to find something they could do first. Yeah. Terry became chief marketing officer. Terry did a big study uh, looking at how customers saw supermarkets and concluded that the products were seen as good and the prices were good, but the experience of shopping wasn't. So he thought, ah, if we do something about the experience of shopping, we can actually do something before Sainsbury's that customers are telling us they're going to like. Customers are telling us how to beat Sainsbury's. Let's do that. So that's where that's where it came from. In EasyJet's case, Carolyn McCall arrived, and when she arrived, it was pain. So it was a turnaround situation. The previous leadership team had cut back and cut back and cut back to the point that there weren't sufficient numbers of crew to run a punctual airline. And without punctuality, nothing else matters from a customer's point of view. So the first thing was that she had to reinvest uh, uh, to get to get punctuality back. She also used language quite cleverly early on. And language is a good clue to the unspoken shared beliefs in an organisation. And so one of the things she did, she was in operational meetings and the teams referred to flights that were delayed. And, you know, the flight stuck in Madrid and a flight stuck in Amsterdam and they would have the code names for them. And she said, could we talk about the number of people? In, in Madrid and the number of people in Amsterdam. 
So people start saying, okay, well, there's 100 people in Amsterdam, 180 people in Amsterdam, there's 200 people in Madrid. And you think, oh, hang on a minute. Do they do they know what's going on? And do they have food? And do they have somewhere to stay at night? And etc. It just prompted people to almost subconsciously to begin with to start thinking in a more human outside in way than the mechanistic sort of inside out way that, that was natural. Yeah. EasyJet then moved on to a more a nicer version of ambition. So, so uh, uh, her team, her team uh, leadership team uh, changed a little bit. She at least a couple of people joined from the outside that had more naturally kind of marketing type views, uh, and they and they developed a purpose, possibly the most boring purpose I've ever heard, uh, and it was to make uh, flying uh, easy and affordable for their customers. But the, boring, but, was, but boring, but probably something that appeals to customers. Appeals to customers, and it meant something because their observation was that 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 discount flights were affordable, but they were anything but easy. And their job wasn't to make it easy and less affordable; it was to make it easy and still and affordable. affordable. Yeah. And at that point, it becomes an innovation challenge. They they wanted to keep the low price, but make the experience enjoyable, and that was that was no small challenge, was it? Abs- absolutely. And and th- and their first two moments of belief tackled two of the things that people hated most. So, so one of those was not having an allocated seat. Yeah. Um, so, so you had that race to sit down, which only if you were traveling on your own and you were quite fit, uh, did you enjoy? Probably even then you didn't enjoy it really. Um, you've got to get the planes to be able to fly backwards and forwards eight times a day to make the economics work to get the prices down. That means you've got to turn the plane around very quickly. And if people know where they're sitting, they sit down slowly. Whereas if they don't know where they're sitting and they just sit in the first seat that's available, they sit down much more quickly. So the assumption was you couldn't get quick turnaround times and allocated seats together. And that's what they set out to try and work out if you could you could do both. And it took them 18 months. And when you say afterwards it took 18 months, it doesn't sound that long. But when you think after a year they hadn't solved the problem and they didn't know it was going to take 18 months. So the determination, the burning sense of ambition that they had to have to keep going. And the operations director thought it was never going to work. So this is a really interesting story because they knew what they wanted to do. They knew what the pinch point were from the customer point of view. Customers hate this scrum for a seat. They're going on a holiday or even a business trip. And it made this miserable experience or they have to sort of, you know, run for a seat at the last minute, which which nobody wanted to do. But there was a reason for it in terms of the mechanics of an airline works, because it meant that because you're putting pressure on the customer to go and sit down, they say sit down bloody quickly. Whereas yeah. otherwise, they, whether otherwise they dawdle or they know exactly where they're sitting, they leave it, they go to the shop, they take their time and it's harder for the crew to board the airline. So the marketers say, great, well, what are we going to do? Gonna get rid of this. But then when we look into it, we think, oh, hang on, there's a reason why we did it from a from a mechanistic point of view. And actually, it's a really tough challenge to solve. So there's something there about customer led is that come up with the idea, but then you've got to work out how to overcome the embedded challenges within it. And, and in a sense, no one function can do it on their own. Yeah. Um, whatever, you know, what customers experience ultimately is the product of what everybody in the organization does. So you you might you might have the insight into what could make the difference, but you're going to need to orchestrate uh, work collaboratively with colleagues to do what's going to be needed to to get it done. 
Uh, and in the end, the inspiration they got was from Formula One wheel changes, tyre changes, um, which essentially four things happen in parallel rather than one thing happening four times in series. And, and so this is why you, you board discount airline planes now always from the tarmac. So even if there's an air bridge, they don't use it. And if you board from the tarmac, then if you've got an allocated seat, you know whether you get in the front door or the back door. And it does take you longer to sit down, but you basically fill in, fill up two halves of the plane in parallel rather than the whole plane in series. And that was the key to, to, to unlocking the problem, which they then made a huge amount of money from and got huge advantage from. So ultimately, a simple solution, but it takes a while to work it out and work out how you're going to do it and how you're going to crack it. And it's a genius, a great story. And the book's full of these stories, isn't it? Sort of things that marketers and their colleagues in businesses um, can can get some inspiration from. Because the danger is, of course, if we're not customer led, then someone will come in and disrupt the industry by being customer led. So we've got to be disruptors within our businesses. It strikes me that a lot of these stories will show marketers that it can be done. Absolutely. There are 18 stories in the book, and most of them are legacy companies yeah. that found the burningness from one of those sources and had the outside in perspective to then do something constructive about it. And it's hard. What what you're doing in a legacy business, the problem is you, you become fixated about the solution to the customer problem that you've learned to produce at scale. And you start thinking the thing you're producing is is the is the solution is the best possible solution to the problem. So I remember years ago working on uh, ready meals, um, and and the problem with working in the ready meals sector is that you just think about your competitors who also produce ready meals. And so innovation is you know different packaging and maybe a different cuisine from Vietnam or something like that. And then along comes Deliveroo and Just yeah. Eat, and of course the problem the customer is trying to solve is how to get nice food quickly. And as soon as you say that, it's obvious there are ways of getting nice food quickly that aren't ready meals. Um, but the problem is, if you're if you're in in a category of ready meals, you 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 just concentrate on doing that as well as you can. So come on, then, twenty twenty three. If you're a marketer, many of our listeners are marketers in. I'm going to use that phrase, legacy business. So I was saying this has sounds slightly derogatory, and it shouldn't. But established businesses who are facing disruption. We're all facing disruption. Everybody's facing disruption 2023 is coming along we know it's going to be a difficult year with margins we know that costs are going to be high um if you've got an idea about how your business can become more customer-led and disrupt from the inside by being more customer-led what are the steps you take in your business to get your ideas to the top table is it about finding allegiances finding those allies finding those people that do share the burningness in there, even though that might not be everybody, is it about identifying those souls in different parts of the business, different departments? I think I think that's that is definitely a crucial part of it. I think there's also maybe a couple of things you can do to help people go on the journey. Right. One of the things that we found that can help people's belief outside in belief in a in a much more practical, small way are doing things in person to look from the outside in. Um, and remember, looking from the outside in has two things about it. It's about understanding what really matters to customers and then finding new and better ways to respond to, to their problems and, their, and, and the outcomes they want. So, so speaking in person to some customers, even a very small number of customers, sounds really obvious, but is very powerful at reminding you 
about how they see the world, what they really care about, what the impact is of what they're experiencing from others and from you. And you doing that, but also other people from other parts of the organization doing that can be a really powerful unlocker for people to realize there's stuff out there that matters that they're not dealing with, that there are problems that are not fully solved, um, or there are consequences to things that are happening that are normally invisible, that are quite serious and maybe people are carrying on buying from you but their mindset is very much not with you and frustrated and and so on do you think sometimes going back to what you said right at the top of the show um customers have a tendency to accept the difficulties accept unpleasantness as just part of the transactional process they may not they may not complain about it all the time even if they feel it themselves and sometimes you've got to dig a little bit to find these pain points. We talk about the, the, the breadth of your conversation with customers as being either at the thin end of the wedge or the thick end of the wedge. And most people tend to have a conversation at the thin end of the wedge. So let me give an example. If you're a credit card company, a thin end of the wedge conversation will be, let me ask you about credit cards. How did you, how, why did you choose the current credit card that you've got? And what customers will probably say is something to do with interest rates or, or what have you. And it will be, kind of true but it won't be very helpful the thick end of the wedge is starting with them and their lives and who they are and how they live and probably some characteristics they have like whether they're quite planned or quite spontaneous about things and their attitudes to money and whether they're comfortable with debt or whether they're more savers and want to be a bit more control of things and then you might get a bit further along the wedge a bit a little bit narrower and start understanding what they do in relation to money and buying things and the relationships they've got with different sorts of organizations and so on. And, and, and their answers to those questions will be more will, will make more sense because you've understood the bigger picture. And then maybe you'll get back to, to why they got the particular credit card they've got. But by now you've got all this context. So you'll understand that for them, a credit card is only ever going to be a small part of a solution and maybe they use it in a very narrow very particular way or maybe they use it in a very irresponsible very big way uh, because of other assumptions they've got but you understand a whole lot more about what really matters to that customer by looking at the thick end of the wedge by starting at the thick end of the wedge than by only being at the thin end of the wedge so so even in conversations with customers and there is a second bit to come to doing this as well but even in just looking at conversations with customers there are are more useful versions of conversations and less useful versions of conversations that you can have. Yeah, yeah. So what's the second bit then? What's the second bit that you're going to reveal? So the second bit is is the second part of looking outside in. So it's the it's the new and better ways bit. And again, we found that there are ways of doing this that are quite personal and quite emotive. And essentially, this is about looking at parallels. So find people in other sectors. Uh, not close competitors, but in other sectors uh, that have done, have tackled issues with some similarities to the issues that you're wrestling with. And then find somebody in that organization or who used to work to that work for that organization and listen to their story in person. And when you do that, and maybe when a, when a group of you does that from your from your own team or from your own wider organization, you get two things from it. You get ideas that you wouldn't necessarily have had before. But more importantly than that, you get belief that very different things are possible because it's happened over there. And you've got a chance in the conversation to also say, what went wrong? 
And how did you make the case to do that? And if you did it again, what would you do differently? And what did it really cost? And how long did it really take? And all of that stuff. But it's true. What happened is true. And you might find that it took a bit longer than would have been ideal, but it definitely happened. But you listen, you, you listen and learn in quite a helpful way. They're not telling you what to do. They're just telling you what they did. And yeah. if you have three or four or five of those conversations, then people give you new bits of jigsaw puzzle that you didn't have before that you can piece together into a new picture that you can now start believing might answer the customer problems that customers told you about that customers can't solve on their own and that you can't solve very easily on your own either. So so that's a sort of belief based way that we found of giving giving you both the insight that you might need about what really matters and then the ideas and the confidence or the belief to do something about it that hasn't been done before in your sector. That confidence and that belief will help change your mindset. It will smash up your mindset from being inside out to outside in. And we all need a bit of smashing up and self-disruption <laughs> from time to time, I would say. Well, OK, that, that is fantastic, Charlie. Some great insights there today. When can we get hold of this book of yours? It's on sale now. Uh, through all good booksellers, uh, probably some that aren't good as well. Um, uh, so, so yes, I'd encourage you to look at it. There, there's a website, thecustomercopernicus.com, uh, just the customer Copernicus as one word. Uh, that's quite hard to say. And I'd encourage people to have a look and enjoy the stories. There are some other stories on the website uh, as well uh, from some other organisations that aren't included in the book. So, uh, so they're worth reading too. Transport for London, uh, Gift Gaff, Mumsnet, uh, and even the Glasgow Neonatal uh, Clinic. Wow. Uh, who have who have uh, used a, a parent-centered approach to uh, sort of young and sick babies? Fantastic! Some big brands and some lesser-known brands, but all great stories. Charlie Dawson, thank you very much indeed. I hope you'll join us again on the CIM Marketing Podcast very soon. Yeah, love to. Thank you. Love love talking to you. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the CIM Marketing Podcast on your platform of choice. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. We'd love to hear your feedback. CIM Marketing Podcasts.